This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone. This is the Distraction Pieces Network's Stop and Search, Episode 2. We're going to call this one Cannabis, the Grassroots Revolution. Here we go. Thanks so much for joining us again. This is the second episode of Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network. So what happened? What happened on the first episode? Um, Well, we got into the top 40 iTunes chart, which we did not expect for one minute. And we got into number seven in the news and politics chart. We thought it'd be a lot more slow burning than that. But it turns out people get it. They understand what we're trying to do with making this conversation accessible and making it hopefully entertaining. We'll find out that as we go along on that, I suppose. But also just making sure that everybody takes part in this because once you find that you start stripping away the layers of the war on drugs is that most people do have an opinion and it's pretty fierce normally. So get involved and please subscribe. Uh, go onto iTunes and rate us and review us. And the people that did review... Thank you so, so, so much. You got it. You understood. The reviews we had were perfect. Honestly, it really made our day. I'm going to quickly set this up so we can go straight into the episode. We did this again live at Tottenham Court Road Waterstones in front of an audience. And on the panel, we had Norman Lamb MP, who's a Liberal Democrat and has been pushing through some great reform dialogue, especially around cannabis as well, because there's been a lot of movement on that lately. We also have Joe Wells, who's a left-leaning political comic that uh, I saw in Camden. So I got in contact because he also does a podcast called Think Tank. And I thought it'd be great to have some sort of collaboration. As it turns out, Joe doesn't necessarily agree with what we're saying on drug law reform. He's quite sceptical. He's quite... um, wants to take safe measures to make sure that people are protected from drugs and the association, the harms. So I thought, great. That's the perfect thing to do. Have that conversation of someone that doesn't agree with us to see if we can have any kind of mutual ground. And that's what we did. And I can't thank Joe enough for doing that as well, as did most of the audience as well. Most of the audience come away really praising Joe for having that voice of eloquence and but also scepticism and just having being open to a conversation because you don't always get that. You know, sometimes it can be a closed position. So see how we get along with that. See if Joe was convinced or he wasn't, you know. We'll find out at the end. 
And also, we had Dale Beaumont-Brown on the panel, who is a friend of mine and a film producer and director of Grassroots, The Cannabis Revolution, which is a film that's been in the making for three years following medicinal cannabis users in the scene. Uh, the film comes out on the weekend of the 27th of 28th of August at the Norwich Radical Film Festival. Now, I'm going to put all these links on acast.com slash stop and search. So you'll be able to see um, the film trailers, the film clip, but also if you wanted to book tickets for that weekend of premiere, please do because, I mean, the support would be brilliant. You know, you can't support drug policy reform enough, so please do get along to that if you can. And towards the end, you'll hear Neil Woods, who you'll remember from the first podcast. Neil Woods is the former undercover detective. Uh, he's also the Leap UK chairman and co-host of this podcast, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, go with that. If you could support us at ukleap.org or at ukleap on Twitter, and I think the Facebook is at ukleap.org again, please do. It really does help. Just have a pop along, have a read of stuff, see what we're doing. But... Um, also, don't forget to visit a cast to check out all the links I just said. And yep, this is episode two of Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network. This is Cannabis, the Grassroots Revolution. I'm generally not feeling that great, so I'm just about to medicate myself with some cannabis. This is kind of the newest and most effective and efficient way of getting cannabinoids into my system quickly. Cannabis is the oldest medicine in the world. It was a medicine in this country, of course, until 1971, when the Parliament decided to stop it being a medicine. I mean, how, how can MPs decide what's a medicine or not? You see, the major flaw with prohibiting any substance is that if people like to take that substance for whatever reason, somebody will supply it to them. People like to think of this as the war on drugs. I think it's actually a war on people. There's so much stigma around us, and there's that stoner stereotype which sort of alienates us from, from normal societies. Something has to have gone wrong somewhere where there's a criminalisation on people that are already suffering and are already on the fringes of, of society. So the grassroots activism is so needed, it couldn't be any more needed. When I found out the truth about cannabis, I was just outraged. I was like, how could I have not had this medicine given to me when so many people around the world already know about it, when it, is a, when it could be available, when it used to be available in this country? My own illness would never have been as bad as it was if I had been able to access cannabis. me something back that MS took away. I'm standing up for my right to, to live. I'm standing up for my right to be myself. I'm, uh, I live it every day. I can't, I can't not be in it. I live it every single day. Let's have a round of applause for Dale and Ross over here. 
So that's coming out this year. And that's going to be something to look forward to. So what we're going to do now is we're going to speak more about this. We're going to find out what drove Dale to get to this point. And join us tonight, we also have Norman Lamb that was pushing through some really big initiatives and some uh, good reform rhetoric that's coming out recently from the Houses of Parliament. And also Joe Wells, a comic who is a left-wing comic that's not quite convinced yet on drug law reform. So we've got a layman voice in the audience that we need to kind of make sure that we can understand and get those nuances of drug law reform across. So let's introduce the panel. So we've got Dale Beaumont-Brown over here from the film that you just saw, Grassroots, The Cannabis Revolution. Have a round of applause. We also have uh, Joe Wells, the comic, the left-wing comic that doesn't quite yet get drug policy reform. Now, you do, Joe, you do get a mic. And then Joe is part of the Think Tank podcast. And the Think Tank is a political podcast that takes on policy issues such as education. And it's our objective tonight is to convince Joe enough to take on drug policy reform on Think Tank. And we also have Norman Lamb MP from the Liberal Democrats. Now, Norman, as I said, has been pushing through some good measures of reform. And we're going to have a discussion about it. And we've got some leap badges here, which I'm going to dish out. I'm not going to give you one yet, Joe, because you're not agreeing with us just yet. <laughs> this can come at the end, if need be. So where do we start, Norman? So... Is it fair to say that drug policy reform has been fairly intransient for the last few decades? Uh, yeah. Is this on? Yes. Um, I, I think it's extraordinary the extent to which uh, the House of Parliament are uh, completely behind public opinion on this. Um, we had a debate recently in Parliament um, because of the petition, the public petition, that uh, got to the level of names which forces Parliament to have a debate. And the only people talking in favour of reform uh, was Paul Flynn, a Labour MP, who's been totally consistent on this throughout. Uh, Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, uh, myself, and Peter Lilly, a right-wing Tory MP. It was a bizarre coalition. Uh, but we were the only four people. And uh, when we uh, did an, a 10-minute rule bill, uh, it's a sort of mechanism for getting a debate uh, considered in Parliament. There's no chance of it ever becoming law, but um, it was a Lib Dem uh, motion. But there were still very, very few MPs willing to stick their heads above the parapet and actually support reform, which I just find extraordinary and from my own personal experience when I came out and said it and I said what I'd felt for a very long time you sort of wait to see what the reaction will be and you wait for the Daily Mail to condemn you uh, and it didn't come actually bizarrely uh, they just remained silent and so I think even the media has moved on quite a bit and the case for me is so overwhelming uh, the, the rational logical evidence-based case for ending the war on drugs, uh, starting with legalising cannabis, in my view, going for a regulated market, um, that I think in time it's bound to happen, but it just seems like you, that place is stuck in the dark age. Would you say there was more support in the House of Lords? 
Probably because they f- they're less fearful of uh, the media and the electorate. They they're more able to say perhaps what they think. Um, but uh, I just uh, you know there was a, a, a an opinion poll taken after we did our um, after we voted in in our conference in the in the spring uh, to overwhelmingly support this policy. Um, and the poll showed uh, 47% in favour of legalisation of cannabis, 39% against. And that was reported in The Independent. Now, that's the most significant demonstration yet of support. Uh, and interestingly, in my constituency, I represent North Norfolk, which is quite elderly, uh, probably quite socially conservative. I think I had about three letters from constituents sort of criticising me uh, and lots of support. And, and I did any questions also at the time in rural Lincolnshire, uh, and they did a straw poll of the audience. I was the only panel member arguing in favour, three others against me, Labour and Conservative, and the audience was split 50-50. That's in rural Lincolnshire, for goodness sake. So I think public opinion is changing quite rapidly. And how do we get there quicker? Is it a case of drug policy marketing, or do we just need to have these conversations that we're having now what do we need to do to get those last few votes involved in this issue? Well, it's not a last few. It's a hell of a lot of people we've got to change their minds on. And uh, I think, you know, it, there's, a, there's a ballot this week for private members' bills, which is an opportunity for backbench MPs to uh, select an issue to try and get legislation through Parliament. And, if, and it's a total lottery and the chances are that I won't get high up in the list but if I did I would be very tempted to do a bill on the legalization of the medical use of cannabis because I think if you can just get that through it's what happened in California and they're now voting in a proposition on the ballot paper this November for full legalization regulation for uh, for uh, all uses of cannabis and so I think that would be the bridgehead that I think would uh, accelerate the move towards sensible reform. But the fact that Canada, I should say a Liberal government in Canada, is now going to legislate for legalisation, the fact that more states in the United States, what I want to see is a sort of gathering momentum internationally. Uh, and when politicians start to realise that when they speak out and say what they actually believe, the world doesn't fall in, uh, then, um, you know, I think people will increasing numbers, in increasing numbers, uh, join the case for reform. One of the things that you said to me when we first ever met, which was about a year ago, I think, was that in politics now, you just want to do things that are honest. You, you just want that honest position, no spin. And do you find, because certainly within Leap, we find having off-the-record chats with politicians off the record and on the record are very different things. Is there more support behind the scenes than what we're all privy to? Well, a Labour MP sort of sidled up to me after that discussion in Parliament and said, I'm totally with you on this. Uh, An SNP MP said, I was sitting there thinking I agreed with everything you said, but I can't say it. So, you know, because of the party line. Uh, So there there is, I'm sure, plenty more support for, and there's, there's loads of support for medical use of cannabis, and I think you, there would be a chance because I think if we did a, if we had a bill like that now, there would be a massive public campaign uh, to support it, and I think the government might well find itself looking a bit stupid trying to 
resist the case for that. Um, so I think there are far more people who believe it than who are prepared to say it. But I think that will change in time as people realise that actually saying it doesn't uh, cause catastrophic loss of support. We'll get to the medical uses in a minute because obviously Dale's here and I think Dale's going to have a pretty good view on this. But is the broader issue of drug law reform, is that just as much on the radar? Do you think we're going to get some initiatives like decriminalisation? Are we understanding the nuances now of we're not talking about drugs, we're talking about the people that consume them for whatever reason? Do you think we can get that dialogue across as well? Well... Uh, I don't see any sign that... When, when, when we were in the coalition, we tried to get this onto the agenda and uh, the Tories just would not even listen to the evidence at all. So, I mean, my ex-colleague Norman Baker did, got commissioned a r review in the Home Office of, you know, international approaches to drugs, uh, which confirmed... This is a Home Office report. It confirmed that um, there was no link between the toughness of your regime and uh, uh, reductions in the use of drugs by society. It just does not work. Um, uh, but they wanted to suppress that report so that it didn't get out into the public domain. So we just published it. We commissioned a report in the Treasury to demonstrate the tax receipts that you could raise if you had uh, a regulated cannabis market. And it shows that you could get receipts of up to a billion pounds a year. Now, when we see the state of our NHS and the fact that it is under impossible pressure at the moment, a billion quid would help. It doesn't solve the problem, but it would certainly help. And to treat it fundamentally as a health issue, treat addiction as a health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. And you think about the number of people in our prisons uh, because of uh, addiction and because of offending that relates to that, it is, it's scandalous the way, it's a, it's a monumental failure of public policy. How are we doing, Joe? Have we hit on any points yet? That I, I think a lot of what, I, what you've said, I agree that in, in terms of, of a kind of healthcare approach to, to addiction. I think that the reason I'm, I'm kind of sceptical about uh, legalisation of, of cannabis specifically is I've seen, and I can't talk too specifically about this because these are real people that exist, but I've seen people... Uh, become addicted to cannabis. And I, and I know that cannabis is, isn't physically addictive, but you can become psychologically addicted to cannabis. And I've seen it destroy those people's lives and the real misery in their lives. And I think often from pro-reformists, there's a resistance to, to acknowledge how miserable cannabis can, can make people. And I think it... Sorry, I, I almost said... I think it disproportionately, the brunt of that pain is felt by poor people. But the uh, it's because there are risks attached to to it that makes me more convinced of the need to regulate it rather than lean it, leave it in the hands of organised crime. Your approach, uh, if that's what you ultimately conclude, would be that the only place you can buy uh, cannabis is from criminals who have no interest in your welfare at all. Uh, so but I would argue that private companies that have been paid by a Conservative government to dispense cannabis don't have much interest in... Well, it depends on the... I mean, the, the, the expert panel that we uh, commissioned to look at this... Uh, argued for quite a strongly regulated market to stop the sort of commercialisation that you've seen uh, to a degree in Colorado. Uh, but uh, it's, it seems to me much better to uh, control the potency and to uh, uh, incentivise people to take uh, less dangerous strains than to leave it uh, 
in a, in a situation where you have no idea what you're buying at all. You have no idea of the danger of what you're buying. And oft, often uh, other drugs are contaminated in all sorts of ways. Uh, but there is no control at all. So if we're going to do what Think Tank, your podcast is about, where you strip back policy and you rebuild it, at the moment with your so, current Can I explain position. what Think Tank is if, if people... Yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, so I've, I do a podcast called Think Tank where we get comedians to come up with policy ideas and then they propose them to a panel of politicians. Um, so some of the policies we've had were to privatise the NHS and spend the money on beauty treatments. And uh, we also, Andrew O'Neill, the anarchist comedian, wanted to bring back grammar schools so that we could bring about full anarchy. Um, so we have kind of stupid ideas from comedians and then they we get politicians to take them seriously. So how would you construct, with your current, current mindset, drug policy? How would I construct? Well, well I mean, I, if I was doing a think tank podcast, I would ask, ask comedians for, for their ideas, which I'm sure would be You're exciting. a comedian, you're on a podcast, I'm putting you under the spotlight. I, I think that what, what worries me is, is, is that, that, that a lot of things around, that, that, you know, if, if cannabis is legalised, that that is a door that can't be closed again. Um, and I think that it would be, cha- be a big change which couldn't be undone. And I think in terms of things around, around medical issues or, or, or the benefit to people with disabilities, I think that, um, that there are, are lots of other um, things w- which could be done and aren't, be doing, aren't being done to help people with disabilities. Um, I think you know, things in terms of bedroom tax and cuts to disability benefits, I feel like those are the... You know, I'm obviously I'm not someone with a disability, so I can't speak from that point of view, but I feel like those are the pressing issues around disability and around health for people I know work in the NHS. That If you ask them, what, what's, the, what, what's your priority as someone who works in the NHS, they don't say, oh, I really wish I could dispense cannabis. There's other things there. I mean, the other thing I would say quickly, can I say, is that, I mean, you made the point about uh, the most disadvantaged people potentially losing out the most. I think that's exactly what happens under the current uh, uh, situation. You know, David Cameron takes cannabis and uh, and potentially other drugs and becomes prime minister. But others... Um, what other are, drugs do you think he's taken? Well, there's been lots of uh, speculation, <laughs> uh, but I won't go there. Um, and indeed also the Chancellor. Um, but, uh, but other people less advantaged than them end up with a criminal record too often. Um, and in America in particular, there's a lot of evidence. Johan Hari's book, which is brilliant, and I would really encourage you to read it because it gives the most compelling case for change, ending the war on drugs, but he absolutely highlights that black, poor communities in America are targeted uh, and they're criminalised and then they can't get jobs uh, and it just reinforces their disadvantage. Yes, but but I think just because a, a law is being disproportionately used by institutionally racist police forces doesn't mean that that law is a kind of inherent... You know, uh, I don't have the stats, but I'm sure that black people are, are disproportionately um, are punished for, for a variety of, of crimes. But it doesn't mean that those things shouldn't be crimes. It means that we should look at kind of institutional racism in, in our justice system. But the other thing is, why should... One person's drug of choice, uh, claret or indeed tobacco, be perfectly lawful, and somebody else's drug of choice, marijuana, be illegal. When we know that al- alcohol and tobacco are actually far more dangerous, tobacco kills about a hundred thousand people in our country every year. Yeah, and I think that 
Well, I think you know, an ideal situation where no one would smoke cigarettes. I think, you know, I think to, uh, and I think that if, if alcohol was a new drug, we're not in a position... There's a difference between saying... Um, I we think know we can't I'm, achieve that. We know that, I mean, as the film show, drugs have always been around. People will get what they, they want to have. And to try... I mean, the whole war on drugs started or, or reinforced by Richard Nixon, um, not a radical uh, in America... Um, was built on the false premise that you can eradicate drugs from society and self-evidently you can't. So surely it's much better to apply a health-based approach rather than a criminal justice-based approach. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, yeah, I, I, I think that... I do, yeah, and, and, and like, yeah, the station said, I'm, I'm not someone who, you know... I, I think I said to you, I'm not Peter Hitchens. I want to make that really clear that I'm <laughs> definitely not Peter Hitchens. <laughs> but I think that... I agree with you, and I think that kind of approach to, to kind of a, a healthcare uh, approach would, would I would agree with. But I I never quite understand the argument of, of, about alcohol because I just think that the, there's, there's a, the it kind of ignores this, the, what we have now, where we have a whole culture and a whole industry, and people's jobs depend on alcohol. So it would be unfeasible to 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 bring a prohibition for alcohol. But then one of the things that you mentioned that Norman touched on as well is the expert panel. And we got Steve Rolls over there, who was chaired the expert panel. And, um, a brilliant report, may I say. And one of the things that you look at with alcohol and tobacco is the marketing, and which is what you alluded to on having that gateway into this big corporate business under the, under the Tory banner. You can control that. We, we're starting again from scratch where we go, where, how we forward drug policies. So we're starting from scratch. How do you best do it with a public health focus? And that's what the expert panel were focused on, and that's what Norman chaired, or, or, or that's what Norman advocates as well, is that, that push towards public health focus, not having marketing necessarily. Is that going to be any kind of succinct kind of banner for you that's good enough, or still sceptical? I, I, I still... I think I just... I don't trust that this current government to not invite private companies with, a, 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 with an incentive to make lots of money uh, and to not care about poor people, I don't really trust them with anything. <laughs> um, so, and I think that's what, what worries me about bringing in drug reform, certainly you, you now. Sh- you should read Steve's report, which we commissioned. I will, uh, yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's premises that they argue the case for legalisation on a public health basis to improve public health, but also they construct a sort of regulated regime that stops or, or reduces the risk of... Uh, commercialization and large companies making a fortune out of it at the expense of people's health. The whole thing is premised around protecting people's health and having a much more rational uh, evidence-based approach to it. Yeah, but, but we, we all know that, that often... I mean, it's Steve, wasn't it? So, yes, I mean, if, if Steve was Prime Minister, then, then we'd have that discussion, but I think that you often reports... Uh, we can work on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, often reports can come in for, from uh, and then be used in, in different ways when, when they... We should them. try to construct a sensible policy, uh, not thinking it through the lens of how this government would, would implement it. We ourselves should be able to construct the best policy to uh, address this uh, really important issue. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is that there is a massive amount of evidence that extreme violence is associated with the criminal market because the only way organised crime can protect their market is by uh, 
extreme violence. They can't resort to the courts to keep another lot out of their territory, so they only do it through violence. And, and when they've sought to uh, clamp down on uh, drug supply, certainly in the States, it's led to an increase in violence and an increase in murders as rival uh, gangs seek to gain control of a market. We're going to bring Dale in towards the end. Because, <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> because Norman's got a limited time with us tonight, so we're going to kind of make the most of Norman. And also, there's some questions that I want to get in as well. But one of the things that we can look at with any kind of cannabis reform is the way that we distribute it, the, me the model of what we do. And that can be through coffee shops like in Holland. It can be through regulated markets. Joe, what would be, again, if... Any kind of preference to you on cutting down the harms? Because this seems to be what you're mainly focused on, is the potential harms that could be there. How can we minimise that or completely eradicate that? Would a system which enables people to not be criminalised and to not be and have a point of sale that's okay, would that be any consolation to you either? So to not be criminalised and... Have a point of sale, like a social club, something that isn't marketed, something that's more, how can we say back street, something that is not there on the high street that isn't facing a school. And, and I think it's about where, yeah, and, and you know, all of my kind of friends who are cleverer than me, like Norman, uh, all support this, uh, seem to support this idea. And I feel like it probably should be the right thing, but I, I just worry about... I feel you way. <laughs> but I worry about the, I think access must be a factor to people becoming ad ad addicted. That's why so many people are alcoholics is because it's easy to access alcohol. And, and I, I think that I, I worry about that... Um, the, the interesting evidence from uh, Portugal, where they've decriminalised, they haven't introduced a regulated market, but they've, it's no longer a criminal offence to use. Uh, what they've seen is a slight, slight uptake in the use of drugs, but a massive reduction, <coughs> reduction <coughs> in the dangerous use of drugs. So far fewer people losing their life uh, as a result of drug use dirty needles and all the rest, uh, also uh, far less uh, uh, acquiring of HIV through uh, dangerous needles and so forth. So they've, they've made drug use much safer, uh, even though there's been some increase in usage. Okay, yeah, I mean, but also just because you haven't died from drug use doesn't mean that you're not measurable. How about the harms that come in the criminal justice system? I'm going to bring Neil in for this as a hired gun. Neil has seen firsthand from undercover work what drug laws can do. How would you describe it? Well, I had given up undercover work and I was enticed back into a particular operation because uh, I was informed that these particular gangsters were raping people as punishment for drug debts. Now, brewery bosses don't do that if you don't pay your barbell. Um, then there is that, it's a dramatic thing to say, but that really is what it comes down to. And what I found over the years that I was working undercover, and I did it for 14 years, is every year, without fail, the gangsters got nastier. Yeah. And the reason that they have to get nastier is because of police tactics, because police have to try harder to catch them. And so, basically, gangsters operate in those poor communities, and they intimidate, yeah. completely intimidate those poor communities in order to protect themselves from people informing the police. And this is an ever-growing situation, which is a it's, a... it's a war with no chance of de-escalation unless you take that power away from the criminals. And it's worth billions of pounds to organise crime, so there's a lot of money in it. Yeah, yeah that's £7 billion a year in this country, in the UK, £7 billion a year. 
Joe, how's that I'm, maybe I'm wavering slightly. <laughs> it's the it's the uh, the possibility of a free badge that's uh, drawing me in. Um, yeah, and, and I, I I do want, but the, there's still part of me that that says that just because a law is difficult to enforce doesn't necessarily mean that that it should shouldn't be a law. Would you say it's difficult to enforce, Neil? You was, you was doing or, it, or even if it's nearly impossible, it's nearly impossible to enforce laws around sexual. But, but that's not that's not the only reason we're using we're making to uh, change the approach. To yeah, the yeah, no, yeah. But uh, it's it's easy to enforce. You can, it's easy to catch poor people with a bag of cannabis. But it's not. But it's almost impossible to catch the gangsters. There are in this country untouchable gangsters in organised crime groups, and they are only untouchable, wealthy, intimidating people, emerging people, because of prohibition. Which is exactly what happened in the states with the prohibition of alcohol. And, you, in, and from a point of view of drug consumers, which are everyday people. As we've already touched upon, it tends to be the low-hanging fruit, the ones on the streets that are getting locked up, as opposed to the people on the upper echelons of society that can get away with this untouched. Is that a fair system? Because you're, you pretty much are never going to get to the grips of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it does seem. Very I mean, yeah, it does seem very unfair that there are, yeah, there are criminal groups which are untouchable. But then, I, I, I still, do, I, yeah, I, I still wonder whether it's, you know, it's not, you. Know, an argument that because there's groups that are untouchable, that means that the law shouldn't. There's lots of groups which are which are untouchable by the law, and that doesn't mean. Well, in terms of you know, very wealthy people, you might be seen as untouchable by the law, and and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to to pursue those people who are committing crimes just because pursuing them is is very difficult. And I think that there's also a factor of, of the state that the police are in in terms of police cuts and and that. It's going to have, have an impact. So, well, that's where you could argue that place cuts. You do need reform because you, then you can apply the resources to areas that need it, yeah. as opposed to the ones that we could transfer into something like the NHS, which I know is also facing cuts as well. But something that's more treatment based. Because I, I would not have police cuts would be. But the only, the, the only alternative to this, what I think is a much more rational, evidence-based approach, is just clamping down even more. So if you do that, you result in, uh, as has been shown in the States, more extreme violence being used, uh, more people on low incomes being targeted by the police, uh, more people who have their careers tainted through being criminalised, and uh, we know that uh, however tough you get, because that's the evidence from the Home Office study, uh, you don't end it. So the criminal gangs continue to massively profit from this approach. So I just can't see... Uh, I'm sure you don't support the idea of organised crime in this country getting £7 billion on a plate because of public policy. That's the, re that's the reality of it. So surely let's adopt an approach where... Uh, we know through the evidence from Portugal and elsewhere that harm goes down. People are less damaged by uh, dangerous use of drugs uh, than they are under a criminal market. We take the profit away from criminals and we put the money into the NHS and into other public services. Doesn't that make sense? I'm getting closer to the badge. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. It's in touching distance. Just want to get a quick comment in from Dale because Dale's been very patient sitting here. We're going to bring him in towards the end. But did you have any preconceptions about drug policy reform before you start getting involved in the film in the grassroots, the cannabis revolution? In all honesty, I was really ignorant. There's a, there was a lot about it I just really had no concept of. Um, but 
something that really, really came home for me was I read, I read um, um, an article with, um, was it the guy that co-created The, the Wire? Um, Ed Burns, yeah, ex-Baltimore ex police uh, detective. And um, what he said really, really resonated with me. And it was, uh, unless it's someone you care about, a family member or a friend, something happens to them, you really don't care. And I, I read that and I thought, oh, that, that really resonates with me. And that's really the reason why I got involved in it was because uh, a recent, uh, recently a family member got in touch with me um, who has multiple sclerosis and who's a, a, a cannabis activist. And he told me uh, via Facebook, after I hadn't seen him about 12 years, that he had MS and that he used cannabis as medicine. Now, initially, I, I mean, I went to it, I, did, I, I was thinking about it as a family member. First of all, I was thinking, oh, okay, you've got multiple sclerosis, that's terrible. But he wanted to meet up with me about, because he wanted to get his story heard. He wanted to get his message out there about how terrible MS is and how he uses cannabis um, for a medicine in lieu of about nine different prescription medications, which he dumped um, saving the NHS about 16 grand a year, I think. So I went and met with him, and, and he kept saying cannabis was his medicine, and um, that him and a group of like-minded people were uh, campaigning in the UK to try and change the laws, um, fighting an uphill battle, and straight away, you know, alarm bells are ringing. He wanted to meet with me because I'm a filmmaker, and I wanted to meet with him because I wanted to know more about his condition. But we both agreed to make a film about it, and really... I was I was I, I, I consumed cannabis when I was when I was a, a bit younger and I, I I did it for a while and then I just I dumped it and and that was that. So a few years went by and and I came to Clark and it was I, I'm really quite ignorant about this. So when I make this doc if I make this documentary about you, I want you to educate me. So in in many regards, I treated myself as the layman. Uh, everything that I learned, I thought, right, if I'm in the same position as, as, as you know, Joe Public, then that's going to be potentially good uh, for the film. So I, I really didn't have any preconceptions. I'd heard rumblings and rumours of people saying cannabis is medicine, but for me it was a case of, right, I, I want to see the proof in the pudding. Why, why is it that you've got rid of all these prescription medications why, that, that doctors have prescribed to you and said, these are something that's helping you? Oh, you've, you've ditched these because um, they, they, were, they were giving you adverse reactions and depression and all sorts. Um, so really I, I got involved with... with with both eyes eyes closed. And, and you find that as well. I mean, I confess as well, until mid-twenties, drug laws made sense. They, they absolutely did. And I expect from a Lib Dem point of view, you get that, you know, wishy-washy, liberal, wet liberal in the press. I mean, not so much now, but is that something that you've had to deal with? Is, has there been a eureka moment? And is there the fact that you're championing drug policy now, is that any kind of benefit or hindrance or levelling? Well, the thing that I've found interesting this time is that when I've come out and said it, as I said earlier, uh, I haven't had the uh, abuse thrown at you from the Daily Mail or from anywhere else. I mean, there's, there's been a, a trickle of people on Twitter who take a different view, but the vast majority uh, of reaction has been one of, thank God someone's coming out and saying what is rational and sensible and, and liberal. Um, and ultimately, it should be individuals who decide whether to take a substance on advice and getting good access to uh, information rather than the state when the state chooses to let other people take their drug of choice. It's a complete hypocrisy. I said sort of rather mischievously that probably 50% of this government 
has taken cannabis and or other drugs. Um, and yet, you know, because of their sort of privileged position, they go on to uh, make, build very good careers for themselves, whilst others are criminalised and have their careers blighted. I, that's hypocrisy, and uh, we should end the hypocrisy. Right, Greg. Greg's in the foxholes of this discussion. You want a question? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm the chairman of the UK Cannabis Social Club, and there's about 80 of them around the country uh, doing... The, you know, their form of what they think a cannabis social club could, should do. We do have a sort of like a guideline uh, model to how they should operate and uh, they sort of like taken that and run with it. It's a very popular sort of format in the UK. There's a thousand cannabis social clubs in Spain alone. So, I mean, how much do you as the Liberal Democrats know about what's going on in the UK cannabis social club movement or do you know how much of them that even, you know, that they even exist before you put it in the bill? Uh, well, we, I mean, first of all, we... Uh sort of shaped our bill on the basis of the advice we got from the expert panel. And they had looked in particular at Spain, as you rightly say. Uh, and the sort of regime in Spain has existed for years now uh, and appears to work uh, pretty well. So that was the... We wanted to shape our policy on the basis of expert advice. So, And on the panel, uh, we also had a serving chief constable and a retired chief constable. Um, so, look, I, I, I've talked to vast numbers of people who are users of drugs of a variety of kind in this country, but um, I'm, you know, very interested to hear what you say about the network that already uh, exists, and uh, that's news to me. I didn't know that. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, as I say, we, we shaped our policy on the basis of the recommendations from the expert panel. Oh, it's good that we're in line with the experts then. Absolutely, yeah. Can we I'm have, impressed. Can we have one closing statement from you then, Norman, and we'll let you get off? So where do we go from here? What, what's on the horizon? Is there hope? Can we do this? Well, first of all, I hope that uh, there is a chance either for me or for someone else in Parliament to come high up enough on the private member's bill uh, ballot this week to have the chance of um, introducing a bill for the medical use of cannabis. Because I think if we, if we could do that, uh, it would put the government into a very difficult position. I think it could lead to a massive generation of interest in the issue in the country and a lot of, uh, you know, a significant public campaign uh, to get reform. Uh, if that doesn't happen, then we've just got to keep uh, making the case and and sort of building public support. And I, I just think that with what's happening around the world, with Canada, with US states, more and more of them uh, voting to change the system into a more ra rational, uh, humane approach, uh, it's a matter of time. Uh, but I'm quite impatient for change because I, I see... Um, I actually see the sort of catastrophic consequences of the war on drugs, the massive profiteering from organised crime, the extreme violence, as we've heard, that goes with the supply of drugs in a criminal market, uh, the criminalising of so many people, mostly from lower-income backgrounds, which then blights their careers, uh, and a lot of people... Uh, dying or suffering harm unnecessarily through dangerous use of drugs when the approach in Portugal has demonstrated that uh, a health-based approach uh, leads to safer use of drugs, reduced addiction, even though the 
actual usage of the safe usage of drugs may drift up a little bit. Uh, so I just think there is an overwhelming case for reform and the sooner it happens, the better. Well, I think a round of applause for Norman Lang because he's got to shoot off now. Thank you so much for joining us, Norman. I will let you rush off. And we're going to go for another film clip, if that's all right. I'll just... So this is another clip from Grassroots the Cannabis Revolution, which Dale here directed and produced, along with Ross, who's around behind me. There's Ross. What if they charge me with something that uh, is going to um, result in a, in, a, in, a, in a jail sentence? Um, because for the crime that I may have committed, um, you know, they can, they can put you down for up to 14 years. What right have the police got on behalf of the government to interfere in the private lives of individuals. Now, clearly they have got a right if you're talking about stopping somebody from assaulting another citizen or from stealing their property. But I think we've really got to ask ourselves the question, have they got the right to break into somebody's home if they're growing a few cannabis plants to deal with their multiple sclerosis or to ease the pains they've got from cancer to help them regain their appetite? And this seems to me to be completely against the spirit of what the police are there to do. One statistic that I was drawn to recently is that there is estimated 300,000 cannabis grows in this country. That's two cannabis grows for every police officer. So the idea that you could actually stop it is ridiculous. Should we really be deploying our police force there to serve and protect on this hugely expensive task, which isn't delivering benefits, but is damaging hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives every year. It's a very, very serious question that we need to address now. What I should point out is the vast majority of, of cannabis factories are actually run by organised crime. The same organised crime groups prey on those individuals who grow themselves. They follow people from, kind of from grow shops, they pay people for information of who is ordering stuff by mail order. They prey on people who are trying to medicate themselves. I had a small little tent in my spare bedroom in the house that I was living in at the time. It was about midnight, just before midnight, there was a knock at the door. I could see a couple of figures through the glass and I just thought, oh, it just must be somebody I know. And. Uh, as soon as we touched the door handle, that was it. As soon as they heard that click, bang, <laughs> four people in balaclavas through my front door. Yeah, they sort of forced their way in. I did start fighting, trying to hit them back and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I ended up getting sort of punched to the ground. I couldn't breathe. And uh, yeah, I genuinely, that was the closest I think I've ever come to thinking I was gonna die or actually dying. I've been seriously hurt, and uh, all for a few ounces of weed. The real, genuine, unpleasant crimes that are going on within the world of cannabis can't even be reported, because if they did, they incriminate themselves. So vulnerable people, again, are getting abused by gangsters and they can't even be protected by the state.
another round of applause for Dale. Neil, do you want to come up and join us? As soon as you're in that clip. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So picking up where we left off, Dale, you, you, again, you went into this with your eyes shut. What was the journey like? I know it's a cliche, but what was the journey like? Um... Speaking of the microphone, sorry. To be honest, that's 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 probably the the darkest we, we get along the way. I mean, um, it was the, the cannabis community are the friendliest, most welcome people that I've ever had the privilege of working with. For a start, I'm I, I shouldn't have had the sort of access that I was given. I'm I'm the media. I'm the enemy. I'm the guy with the camera. I'm going to subvert your image and I'm going to make you look bad. And and people didn't see that at all basically through making a film about clark my my cousin um i went along to various protests and sit-ins and rallies and things like that and i think basically because he was my cousin that bought me a lot of privilege that i really really didn't deserve and so people would just start telling me their stories and talking to me and um after a while i realized i've got a fair amount of footage here and did a bit of research and realized this is there, there's never been something like this in the UK before that a feature film that's that's gone into this and for good reason because I imagine there's been people out there who's 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 subverted these things for for, for ill gain and um, I think one of the one of the worst things for me though um, there's a couple of things Alex who you saw there that wasn't the only instance I'd heard of of those things happening I must have heard that that same story half a dozen times um, couple of people who wanted to, to say on camera and some people who just broke down on the spot and told me what it was like for them, how they'd had bones broken, family members threatened. And you realise how, how volatile this world is. Um, the, the other thing for me was um, really the... It's something that really made me consider the juggling of, of my role here within this documentary. Um, something that I don't really play to in a documentary is that Clark is my... Is my my family member, my cousin, 
Um, I tried not to do that intentionally because I wanted to make the film as any other would, as if someone else was just making a documentary about Clark and the cannabis campaign. And it really made me consider my role as Dale the family member and Dale the director when we were in Denver. Now, I thought, um, I've had the privilege to document and film the uh, cannabis industry working around the world, and it's all in, in the film. So in the film you see Amsterdam and Barcelona and Denver, Colorado and, and San Francisco. And I followed Clark around to these places to, so he could communicate what, what he thought was going on in these places and, and try and learn uh, a thing or two out there and then trying to, to bring it back home so that he could then tell people about what he found out there. And anyway, the, the, the struggle that I found, it was one night when we were in Denver, Colorado, and Clark had had a real, real, real bad turn, and he was, he was dizzy and he was passing out, and he was just passing out in the toilet and just being sick all over the place, and basically just being non-communicato for a long time. And I'd been filming for about six months now. I'd never seen him that bad, and I really didn't know what to do. So Dale, the family member, kicked in and the camera went down and I, I, had, I had no idea about what it was like for someone with MS to just go through that. That was the first time I'd ever seen that, so I didn't know what to do. Um, so I tended to him as best I could. I thought about calling an ambulance and then just eventually got to sleep. And the next day I spoke to him about it and he said, if that happens again, you don't stop recording. You record all of it because he wanted to show people how bad he can get with this debilitating condition, but also sometimes how even cannabis just it just can't permeate through entirely, and it just can't help everything. It helps him on a day-to-day -day basis, but sometimes it's just not enough. I mean, what was that like on an emotional level? That must have been absolutely gut-wrenching. I really didn't, like I said, I really didn't know what to do. It was in that moment I really felt out of my element, like 3,000 miles from home, away from family, and I just thought, oh, Shit, am I letting people down? What am I supposed to? What am I supposed to do? Am I going to lose him? What was, I, I really didn't know, and it just made me, you know, it took a, a little while, and then it made me realise actually how important this document is for people to see because it's not just about Clark. It's not just about someone consuming cannabis for MS. It's, there's 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 a spate of other people. So Greg, uh, who spoke earlier, um, has um, Crohn's disease. Greg's uh, um, in in there too guiding us uh, through the journey over three years. And there's a spate of people with, with all manner of, of debilitating conditions who, who use this for, for the betterment of their day-to-day -day life. And it, just, it really makes you take stock of what you have and what you take for granted day-to-day. -day. Getting, getting up, going to brush your teeth, going downstairs, making some breakfast, going for a walk to the shops. You take that for granted. Never again will I take something like that for granted because you realise someone like Clark, someone with ME, they, they'll do that and that's it. That's, that's it for the day. That's, they've, they've, they've used up their, kind of their, their health budget for the day, if you want. And so never again will I take anything like that for granted. And this is where it's, it gets tricky because there's, there's a division that you probably notice within the community about medical first, non-medical first. I mean, we've got a position on that where we, we support all drug consumption from cons consumers rather without labelling and without prejudice. We don't from a personal point of view, where I'm quite invested in the medicinal issue, I don't necessarily support medicinal first because it can clog up the system. It can, it's got, got caveats to it that aren't necessarily conducive to fuller reform. What's been your, with, with a policy mindset, 
How would you shape drug policy reform from this point on, knowing what you've learned in that documentary? Well, something that I really, really tended to focus on throughout the film was really just about the medical aspects of it. Um, the recreational aspects, I've met many, many, many people who have spoken to me about it, but that's something that we tended not to, not to ignore, but felt like the, the medical issue was something that was just much more, more prevalent. And I've seen many um, industries in, in places, been to, to Holland, like I said, and, and Spain and, and the US and everything, and it just, to me, it doesn't seem like there's one perfect system. I don't know how you can look at what people are doing abroad and then think about how you can bring it to the UK because it's easy to say the guys are kicking ass in America, they're, they're doing great over there, it's earning a ton of money and it's helping people and there's money going back into the community. Or you look at Barcelona where they've got a great model of, um, what Greg's saying, about a thousand cannabis social clubs and we got, we got access in the film to um, a cannabis social club behind the scenes. The guy wouldn't show his face and that's, that's entirely fair enough because he could get persecuted for, for, for showing his face. But they're not like the coffee shops that you find in, in, in Amsterdam, you know, with the windows open and, you know, music blaring out and all that sort of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's different in Barcelona where it's behind closed doors and you have to go through security checkpoints and everything to get through. So it's easy to say you could take one system and apply it to the UK, but it's not as easy as that because you've got your Tory government in place and other people. It's just, it's easy to say, let's take that system and let's take that system and apply it to the UK. And I don't know if there's a one size fits all. Have you kept up with anything that's been progressing across the world, Joe? Have you, have you managed to see what's happening in America, Spain, Uruguay? Yeah, people say Portugal is the place to, to look at, and, and uh, I, I did read some stuff about Portugal, and, and um, yeah, and then their move to a kind of healthcare approach to addiction seems like a really good thing. Um, I think that it's very difficult to write because often decriminalisation, legalisation comes alongside a move to a healthcare model and putting more funding into substance misuse treatments. So I found it difficult to to know what, what what's helping. This this isn't a patronising question, but <laughs> one of the things that we do find in drug policy that some people don't know the difference between legalisation and decriminalisation. Are you aware of the difference? I think so. I think that this, um, if something is illegal, then you can go to prison for having some cannabis, and if it's decriminalised, then the consumer is not uh, would not be. Uh, could not be prosecuted for it. Is that have I got that right? Essentially, I mean, legalisation is is more of a a, over the a, a market over. system yeah. which you're going to develop. Decriminalisation is something that you're not going to be criminalised for. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as you see, Neil, on the front lines, with the people that you dealt with, that are very vulnerable, as you as you mentioned, if there was a decriminalisation in process, do you think, and this is going to be quite anecdotal, that their lives could be get better and progress from that point on? Just from decriminalisation. Well, I mean, obviously, it would be a lot better if people weren't being sent to prison for having a small amount of um, drugs. I mean, that's that's a basic, obvious uh, truth, I think. And no one's life is improved by sending them to prison, so that's an obvious first step. But the people in the communities that I've worked in, their lives wouldn't be improved because the lives, the, the communities are dominated by organised crime. So I, I talked on that short on that clip there about people being terrified of, of gangsters and, and you know people uh, for example in Manchester just last year there's an organized crime group actually has a, a sort of a, a wing to it which is actually just out there looking for 
people's grows for medical grows and they even they they use equipment that's more sophisticated than the police do because they've got more money so they plant listening devices they they burgle people's houses really carefully to see where the grow is up to and then and then they hit it when the grow is there so you know that they're following people are doing full surveillance from from supply shops and all these kind of things and uh, you know they will boast that we are going to find your grow before the police do and in many cases in most cases they actually do but it doesn't stop there because then they'll kick the door in, like Alex was saying on the clip, and they'll go in and they'll steal your crop and they'll time it when, when your crop is ready. But then they say to you, well, we'll let you keep your equipment, but the next grow, we take 40% off the top. And so what happens there is it, it, is, the, it is the nature of any unregulated market that monopolies will, will form. But in, in a criminal venture, and criminal monopolies like the, the, like, like the drug market, those monopolies just seek to grow. And so people get roped in and they have no choice. They are intimidated and terrified into becoming part of a wider network. And that, that's not going to decelerate and get slower. And if you want to know how big it can get, look at Mexico. And we've got some people in the audience tonight that have suffered at the hands of the criminal justice system, Michelle over here, that's been through the mill pretty comprehensively, still doing it. I mean... Oh, my word. And, and it happened to you really publicly, didn't it? I mean, let's come over to you quickly with the microphone. You can tell your story of what happened after appearing on Channel 5, of all things. Well, I decided to go um, live about my grow because I've got multiple sclerosis and literally without it, I'm in a wheelchair. Seizures every morning, spasms every morning. It doesn't stop. Um, I cannot survive without cannabis. So I thought, no, I've designed a system to grow my own cannabis and a TV company came towards me and said they wanted to do some filming and promote it. So I let them film it and then they sold it to Channel 5, to the benefit programme, dubbed over my voice, changed some of the facts. I was arrested the night that the, the programme was actually aired. It, I was arrested like hours, just before, well, about an hour beforehand. They locked me up for eight hours. Um, then they had to carry me home because obviously the cannabis had gone out of my system by that point. So I, I was kind of running into the police station and they had to carry me home. But they were very kind. The police were very, um, they, they didn't want to do this. I don't think they were put in a position where they couldn't ignore it. Um, but regardless of what's happened, I've, I'm, I've gone non-guilty. I'm not pleading guilty to what they're saying because I'm being charged with growing cannabis. Well, if cannabis, which is what, there's four different plants in that category in Schedule 1, um, I grew something that actually isn't listed. You know, the, the compounds in, in the plant are so diverse that the scheduling is based on information that is so outdated. And it's a historical, total horror, historical mistake for it to be in Schedule 1. Because in Schedule 1, it means that there are no medical benefits. And not only are there no medical benefits, there's no future to looking into it for any medical benefits. Well, that's just absolute rubbish. So the fact that it's even in Schedule 1 shows that it's in the wrong place completely. So what I've done is I've called their bluff and I've gone not guilty, which means they've got to prosecute me and prove that it was cannabis. So they've produced an expert witness um, that came up with very bad testing on the plants and I had another expert that came in and he wasn't given the plants to look at, he was given the information from the first expert to look at. So he could only make an assumption on the first experts. So we're still fighting it in court. I'm still going not guilty, but I have been warned by my solicitor that I stand to do five years minimum, 
Yeah, because I got previous. I, I loaded it up. And of course, when I got released, I planted straight away, went straight back on Facebook. Eight weeks later, I was rested again. Um, I'm still growing now. They don't come around anymore. They, they, <laughs> they, they come to my door and they're like, we're not coming in, Michelle. We're not coming in. Um, I will continue to grow. I won't stop. I stand to lose my home. Um, I've lost most of my family through this anyway because uh, my family are very conservative and they really struggle with things that are breaking the law regardless of how well it helps. They'd rather watch me die, basically, than, than fight a law that is, is illegal. Um, I don't believe that's the way to take it forward, so I will stay with not guilty. That's Michelle. Are you edging any closer to the budget? I'm, I'm wheeling out all the anecdotes, all the yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that, that, you know, clearly for Michelle to go to prison for five years would be insane. Um, and, and, you know, not a good use of, of kind of public, public money. Um, I am, and I think it was reassuring. One of the things that I found very reassuring before the break was when Norman said that he kind of acknowledged the, um, the suffering of addiction, really. And, and I think that that is... That is what made me, and I think what makes a lot of the public very hesitant um, to arguments around reform is, is is that a lot of people who are pro-reform are kind of like, yeah, it's fine, we did it at university, it was all fun. And um, it's very reassuring to hear Norman say that. Um, we actually have a question for you over here as well. Uh, yeah. You were talking earlier about the, the health benefits and um, or, or the health detriment that it can have on people, and I would totally agree. I've seen people go completely down the drain because of cannabis but um, in America since regulating it the use of uh, prescription drugs and other opiates has gone down massively as a result of regulating cannabis because it's actually a lot easier to go to a dispensary and pick up some cannabis than it is to go and get some illegal prescription drugs or heroin or something like that off a street dealer so in terms of the, the things that these people might be taking would potentially be less harmful if you were to legalise cannabis. Uh, what would your reaction be um, to that? Yeah, I, th I, I think that's a fair point. I, I think that, that, all, that, that it also sometimes the, the health benefits of cannabis are exaggerated. I was told by someone, I was asking about <laughs> trying to get some information for this podcast, and someone said that, that cannabis oil can cure cancer. And there'd be no cancer if everyone could have cannabis oil, and clearly that's not true. And I do, uh, the one thing which I found a bit frightening was in that clip seeing someone with, with anxiety and depression using cannabis, because I, uh, this is something which I know a bit about, because I've, I've written a book about my own experiences of mental health, and I think we do have really good uh, therapies for anxiety and for depression, and there's a real problem with access to those therapies, and there's a real problem with, with training of the people who are delivering those therapies. And I think that even though I, you know, I'm edging closer to, towards the badge, I, I do think that it's quite an easy fix to say, you know, ha ha take some cannabis when people, there are, we have treatments which we know work for mental health, mental illness, uh, and which people don't have, have access to. I'm just going to check with a policy oh. expert over here. Has there been any evidence on the use of medicinal cannabis cutting down on opiates. I mean, we're talking about America over there. America are quite obviously suffering with an opiate epidemic, as, as it's being termed. Is there any evidence that supports that with cannabis we can reduce that harm? There's, there's one good paper uh, I'm aware of, but o only one that I've seen, suggesting that medical cannabis states do have lower levels of, uh, 
opiate, uh, problematic opiate use. Um, what the what the sort of direction of causality between the cannabis use and the opiate use is is, is speculative, but there is some evidence, and it, I mean it does seem plausible. I mean, uh, cannabis is obviously useful as a form of pain control. So if people need less opiates, then uh, less opiates will be being consumed, and less people will run into problems with their opiate use. So um, there is there's some evidence. It's not particularly well established yet but it, it seems plausible and my guess is that that, that evidence will um, increase o- over time because yeah it, it does seem it, it seems very plausible and uh, but you know it, there's only one paper I've seen at the moment Susie Gage that, um, that was here last month uh, she just did her podcast Just Say Why to Drugs which if you've not downloaded it yet please do it reached number 7 in the iTunes chart which is just crazy um, but she mentioned that the fact that with Holland, with, with, with the coffee, coffee shop culture, and, and again, this, you can't necessarily infer any kind of correlation on this, but it's, it's interesting that with the cannabis market that they have in Holland, they haven't got as much heroin use there. Now, again, you have to justify that in the sense that you can't draw any conclusions from it. But again, we can, we can look at the harm reduction side of that. Does that... Is there a concern to you, Joe, that the gateway theory, are you aware of this, of you start on cannabis and you work your way up? Yeah, yeah, I'm aware, I'm aware, of, yeah, I'm aware of that as well. Would you give credence to that notion? Do you think that that is plausible or do you just dismiss that out of hand? I mean, I, no, and I, th- I think that, that uh, I think it is a, one of the, you know, and as I said from the start, you know, I'm not someone who's, um, I'm not firmly, you know, uh, on the kind of Peter Hitchens side of things. Let's go for a question over here. Um, I'd just like to say about the gateway. Um, I was obviously brought up around drugs. I had my father in prison most of my life through heroin abuse and selling heroin, cocaine, um, anything you could think of. My family still take drugs in and out of prison. I've never taken a drug. I had that opportunity to be able to take a drug. I could have easily just gone downstairs to my brothers or my dad and said, "Can can you give me a joint? Like, I'm young, I just want to try it. But I never have. So I think with the gateway, I don't think it works for everybody. I think, if you think about it, a lot of people don't know where they're going to head. I didn't think I was going to go to university. I thought I was going to end up exactly the same as my dad, my brothers, just basically be on benefits, take drugs, sell drugs, and that's it. I used to help my brother cut up the, um, the dope and wrap it up, weigh it, ready to be sold. But I never touched it in my life because I had that fear from society that if you take a drug, there's something going to go wrong with your brain. And it doesn't always happen like that. At least 80% of people who take drug are not problematic. So that's my family. They don't have no problem with it. My dad was a perfect father. The drugs never affected how he treated us as children. So I think the gateway isn't... I don't think it's, like, out the window completely, but I, I don't think that it works for everybody. Did you, in the filming, Dale, did you... I, I don't want to focus on this too much, but did you, did you find that there was, with cannabis, the culture of it, was, was it conjoined with any other kind of drug culture or was it pretty much standalone? What did you find? To be honest, I never really, I, I never really found 
any association with any of the others, which I, I don't know if I was surprised or shocked about. I don't know. It's, I, I think, I guess, I was, I was thinking that there might be other issues along the way or other drugs might come into the conversation, um, but it never really did. Um, every time I would hang out or go and film uh, cannabis campaigners and they would consume cannabis, that, that's it. The majority of them w wouldn't drink, wouldn't drink alcohol, consume anything else. So I, I, I never really found them. So would you think that it is very much socially dependent on where groups fall? So prime example, MDMA is quite clearly going to be with clubbers. Uh, cannabis use is going to be medicinal users and people that want to relax and watch Game of Thrones. Do you find that there is, there is some kind of correlation between who you are, what, what your predilection is? Yeah, I guess so. But I, I also, the majority of the people that I've documented in the film, um, there's, this, there's, this, there's this horrible stoner stereotype that goes around in the public in the public eye and I think once you what you'll see once you watch the documentary is that that completely is not true at all because um, if if they can for one way or another then they'll work if not then they put their spare time into campaigning it's it's definitely a lifeblood thing for them they, they, they put their whole life and 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 lifeblood into it really so I've, I didn't really find it all right, here's a question. Has there been, in your opinion, any negative impact on the groups that are involved in cannabis activism and, their, and who they are? Have you seen possible negative aspects that go with that? In person, no. To be honest, when I, start, when I started out, I, 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 was, I very much wanted to be on the fence, towing the line, tailing both sides of the argument. Now, what happened was I really something I really, really struggled was finding people who would actually speak out publicly against it. Uh, it just it just didn't really happen. Um, so what you've got is it's it's a film, a pro-reform film that is yeah probably quite biased, but it's it's got good intentions for that. So I would I think I would have liked to have a little bit more of an insight from from the other side as well. Um, but it didn't happen. And, and Joe, in the entertainment industry, as you are, <laughs> do you find that there is any kind of negative impact on drug use that goes with comedy or any other kind of um, entertainment? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd much rather perform to rooms full of stoned people than rooms full of drunk people, definitely. Um, there you go, there's an argument for legalisation. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too, too much of you know, about real people but uh, you know i think people um, uh, yeah i'm uh, there are people who smoke cannabis too much and then become very insular and and aren't able to get uh, out of the house and become very paranoid and uh, and it does it does happen and uh, and you know i mean it's interesting to say you say i'm the closest that you've been able to get as someone who, who's kind of anti reform and i don't really believe it <laughs> but uh there are people who, who smoke cannabis or consume cannabis they don't have to smoke it and it gets them out of the house as well, and it gets them socialising and interacting with people, and helps them actually go about their day. No, I, yeah, and, and, and I agree, and and, and um, but I, I, I think it, it, that the there needs to be an acknowledgement that 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 there are people that, that that stay in the house and become insular because of it, and that is worrying for the public, and 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 those are the people that will need to be convinced ultimately to vote for a party who are going to change laws. I think it, it is worrying and it worries me knowing people who become very insular and um, and I think that, that if the, that, and that's why I said it was reassuring to hear Norman say that because I think that there is often not an acknowledgement of, of that kind of suffering. 
I think we do in, in reform we do suffer from sometimes having the wrong impression I think we sometimes people think that we're there for a free-for-all and certainly not with what policy expert like over to our right here uh, transform and IDPC you know, they're very much in it for social justice as are we in, in LEAP and on the drug harms itself I'd imagine this is what Greg DeHoyt wants to speak about yeah, I'm just uh, just interested. It's like you say your friends had a problem with cannabis. It's like uh, a lot of the argument that we hear from uh, politicians or the media is like they're super strength, uh, super strength skunk, and it, that's that's what it does. It makes people lazy and they can't do anything and they don't you know live their ambitions. But if your friends had access to a cannabis social club where they could have chosen from a range of strains that could have said this one makes you more proactive, this one make, helps you relax, this one helps you sleep, this one makes you less paranoid uh, because some people are just paranoid in their normal lives um, the other thing is a lot of people don't like leaving their homes because they use cannabis and they can't go out and socialise in the same way as people do if they go to a bar and buy a drink so that's I think the prohibition in, you know, forces the antisocial side of things but just, just reflecting on that do you think if your friends had access to cannabis that did have a certain amount of CBD or was more of a sativa based and made them a little bit lively they wouldn't have been so you know, wasteful in your, you know, in your perspective. Yeah, possibly. I think that's that's probably a good argument. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, do, do you know much about cannabis itself in the sense of THC, CBD? I'm looking at Joe. No, I don't. No, I don't know. And, uh, um, as we've known from the start, I'm not. I'm not an expert. At, but my, yeah, which is which is interesting because uh, that's what we find in reform that most people don't know. If you go to that bar there and you order a pint of vodka and you tip it straight back, the chances are you're going to be down here laying on the floor. But with cannabis, you can do that in the, in the same context. Then with what the cannabis social clubs are doing, would you say that you're doing more of a responsible-based cons consumption? That's our point. I mean, one, one of the guys who uh, runs our Dorset Cannabis Club, he came to me in 2013 and said, listen, mate, I've got some problems at work. They know I smoke cannabis. They think it's a problem with, my, uh, with me, and they're making it out to be a problem, and it's becoming a problem, but it wasn't before. They just don't like it. I'm aware that some strains do make me feel a little bit more sort of like lethargic, and other strains might make me a bit more erratic, but I don't smoke at work, so I don't see what the problem is. Could you help me understand it a bit more? So I, I explained to him that you've got CBD, which is, uh, you know, antipsychotic, helps mitigate some of the, the effects of the THC, which gets you high. But then you've also got and lots of different strains that might be the same, have the same level of THC and CBD in it, but they make you act completely different. That's because of the essential oils in it, the terpenes. Now, one of those make, might make you, you know, really excited. Uh, alpha pinene, for example, it's that. Uh, the, the scent that you get from walking in, you know, fern, uh, you know, forests, uh, forests, uplifting smell. People love it, but when you mix it with THC, it's you know really exciting, and people love that. And uh, that's you know, it works certain well for a, a certain amount of conditions. And it, if you've got an anxiety disorder, it might not work very well for you because it might exasperate that. So just giving people that kind of information allows them to make, have a you know a better choice on it, and it makes, allows them to alter the way they use cannabis. Now, this guy turned out to become one of our you know, best public speakers and advocates because the penny dropped with him. He's like, ah, why didn't I have access to that information you know, through my doctor or through, through my work? Why didn't they just know that? Why is that so hard for me to find that information? And he was struggling for a couple of years you know, in that job, and it gave him the confidence to actually leave the job, get a job that was better for him and that, you know, something that he felt more comfortable in. But it was just the information that gave him the confidence to do that and you know, effectively changed his life. Does that appeal to you, Joe? Yeah, I think that, that's really fascinating, use? and, I, and I, I, did, I wasn't aware of that, and I, and I think that um, 
yeah and and again i think i suppose i'm i imagine yeah and i think i that i imagine towards <laughs> accepting the idea of reform but as part of a package where that information i think that information would definitely need to be available and i and i think that i'm i'm piecing together my policy in my head but i think that that you know that that as part of a package where that that um education was available because i think that's really essential you're talking about education and what greg was just discussing but what greg's discussing is what what him and and all his friends and colleagues out there are doing it, in essence they're very very illegal and could land them in, in big trouble whereas in in places like in colorado where there's a fully regulated fully legal system they do exactly what greg has just described because when i when i went over there um when I went over there, I got access to a uh, medical marijuana facility and they showed me the entire process, literally from when they plant a seed in the ground to when they, they sell weed over the counter in their dispensary. And they do exactly what, what Greg has just discussed. So I, I was asking questions much what you were asking about. What about people with social anxiety disorders um, or depression or anxiety and, and things such as that um, where cannabis might make them feel very very you know adverse and they said well we've got a system for that because we've got some some master horticulturalists who basically they go out in the warehouse and they 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 engineer plants specifically for specific patients so if they get a patient that has uh, an anxiety disorder or something where they can't have something that is very very high in thc the psychoactive compound then the guys they go back and they whip up a storm and they can make something for them that physically does not get they don't feel the highs from it so if you get something that's lower in the, the psychoactive aspect or higher in the medical aspect the cbd and things like that then that's something that they don't really they don't really feel and that's so yeah. i think that information is a real game changer in convincing me i think yeah. <laughs> we're edging closer to the badge <laughs> we're going to wrap up fairly soon so have we got any questions out there that's still in the audience Still sort of on the education basis, um, the first time I ever smoked cannabis was a friend turned up and he had a rolled joint that his brother had done, which obviously had tobacco in it with the cannabis. No information, nothing whatsoever, we just, we had a go, we got stoned, it went from there. Up until that point I had been a complete against cigarettes, never would have touched them, had, had no intention to touch them. After a year of smoking cannabis, I was addicted to tobacco, and obviously now I smoke tobacco, I'm addicted, you know. Now, if it had been legal and I'd walked into a dispensary, they could have turned around to me and said, you've never used cannabis before. Let me show you this vaporizer. It means you can stick it in this, there's no combustion, there's no harmful chemicals, you're just getting the benefits. You don't have to put tobacco in this, you can use it like that. Far healthier, far better for you. And I don't know, because I've never just started on pure cannabis, but is there a chance that actually people are getting addicted to the nicotine within the joints and not the cannabis? If they knew more about it, possibly they'd go a different route. There's, there's so many things that you can teach people in a legal environment. One of the, one of the things that you mentioned, Joe, fairly early on was about marketing the fact that you don't want any more substances marketed towards vulnerable people. Well, tobacco is a success in, in um, health policy because through education, through plain packaging, through sensible emplacements, tobacco use is going down and pretty rapidly. And we know that children and school age are getting their information off of parents and teachers. 
they're the two sources of information which dictates their 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 choices you you've got this perverse nature with with other with other drugs that are illicit in in quotation marks where the education system doesn't exist other than just say no so if you had reform and you had it would still be illegal and uh, age checked for a ch child to buy a substance but you can offset that with sensible emplacements as plain packaging not having it as point of sale but also decent education and that's one of the things that we find that is missing we just are not educating our children enough on drugs other than talk to frank and just say no would that appeal if we could have some bigger bigger conversation bigger nuanced position on what drug harms are would that satisfy yeah, uh, well, yeah, I think I am. I'm, I'm almost there. I think um, I mean, what you need to do is now go to everyone else in the country with this group of people and they're <laughs> coming. But travel? I think that, um, uh, yeah, I, th I think that that's, um, yeah, I, th I think that, that I'm, com I'm coming to the idea of, of, you know, as long as it's, um, as long as it's part of that package around um, education and, and, and all those other things and around improving access to, um, very effective treatments around mental health, which we don't have at the moment. I think I think the only thing that worries me right now is that we have a government who are kind of awful and who uh, don't care at all about um, the suffering of poor people. And I think that um, that that's that's the only thing which um, kind of worries me. Is is, is 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 you know I'd want this reform to come in with a load of other good stuff. We need a revolution. That's what I'm arguing for. <laughs> Just a simple revolution in you. Yeah. And and this is where you can definitely sort of summarise on what it does to the, the lower socioeconomic groups. You've dealt with them. We've, we've spoken about them a little bit. Would you feel that different measures of reform would help and improve social justice? Yeah, definitely. I actually thought you were going to say I can help bring a revolution then. and I <laughs> That's a little bit beyond me, I think. But, yeah, I mean... The, the communities that I worked amongst, um, that the people who are most damaged by drug policy are the those with the least social mobility. So, which, so drug policy actually seeks to increase that divide between between the, those that have got and those that haven't. Um, and not only does it increase the division, it also it also makes entire communities, the poorer communities of inner cities, live in fear of organised crime. Um, and, and those communities, and, and as every day goes past, organised crime gets a greater control, and it is even spreading out of the cities into the countryside. So, yeah, f for me, reform is about social justice. It's about looking after those that are disadvantaged in life. All right, so Dale, let's wrap up then. When's the film out, and how are you doing it? What's going on with it? Just tell us. Okay, so the film's going to be out in the summer. Um, I'm going to be doing film festivals and screenings all up and down the country uh, then. So if you find us on our website, grassroots.q.com, you'll get more information on there, same as on our Twitter and Facebook pages. Um, I guess I'd just like to wrap up. I'm going to go back to what uh, one of my um, interview subjects said, said to me. Um, and that is that if, if people really, really care about this issue and they number in their hundreds of thousands, some say millions in the UK then what they need to do is not just rally together, but put pen to paper and write their MP and write their MP and then write their MP again and keep writing their MP 
until it fills up their desk because until it's filling up their desk and they actually start reading these letters and paying attention to it, then they're really, it's just going to stagnate and it's just going to stay the same and nothing, no change is going to happen and that's that really. So if you care about it, then write your MP and then write him again. And Neil, we're going to come to you as well because we're going to leave Joe till last. <laughs> See if he does go for that badge. Well, we're in the business of trying to persuade people, so obviously this podcast is really useful. But if, if anyone um, thinks they can get a speaking event together and get some people to together to, so we can try and persuade them, then uh, that's what Leap UK is about. We need to get out and, and do more more speaking events. So please, anyone listening, if you think you can get us a speaking event, then um, get in touch with us on our website, which is ukleap.org, or by Twitter, which is at UKLeap, and uh, you'll find us on Facebook as well. Now, Joe, where are we at with this? <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm going to have to take the badge, um, but uh, only on the proviso that we rise up and kill the government. Um, and uh, a wholesome message to finish on. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, th I think that... that um, it's been really interesting tonight, and I think that I, I came into this not really knowing anything about it, but just seeing people I cared about being really hurt by drugs um, and uh, and also seeing that some kind of um, legalisation advocates who, who don't um, who I don't think do the cause favour and I think people here are bloody lovely um, so it's uh, yeah I'm going to have to take the badge aren't I and do you think at some point down the line with your podcast Think Tank which is available on iTunes and SoundCloud which I listened to the last yes. episode on SoundCloud do you think at some point down the line do you think drug laws could be on the agenda for it. Yeah, I mean, well, we ha we have covered crime, so we did um, a policy around the smoking ban. But uh, at some point, I yeah, I would definitely like to do uh, drug laws, um, and we um, and we have you for contacts for for experts as well now. So um, uh, at some point, we're not doing any any time soon, but hopefully sometime in the future, uh, it'll be a subject on think tank. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Let's have a round of applause for Dale and Grassroots Film. For Joe Wells, the comedian and voice of the layman sceptic. And Neil Woods and Norman Lamb that was filling his chair. Thank you so much for coming. And please, when this is out, which I think we're going to do, we're going to do the first podcast with Robin Ince that was the last one, if that makes any sense whatsoever, which it probably doesn't. Uh, we're probably doing that in about two weeks. This one will probably be about a month and a bit down the line. And then we're also going, we're going to do lots of other things like podcast documentaries, roundtable discussions, and the, these live events, which we think are quite working quite well. So thank you for everyone for coming and have safe journeys. So what do you think? How did we do? Do you think we suitably informed Joe? Do you think he got it? Thank you, Joe, for doing that. You really were a star. And also, thank you, everybody, for tuning in and making this what it is. Uh, we're so excited to this project. We are, we're genuinely getting somewhere. So we're going to keep on with it. We're going to evolve it as we go along as well. We're going to get better. Trust me. <laughs> Hopefully, I will get better. Thank you to My Name Is Ad for the podcast artwork. I really genuinely could not have done that without you, and that's literal. And also, um, Let Me Look TV. Thank you again for everything you're doing on this podcast, Drew. You're amazing. Um, thank you to Scroobius Pip at Scroobius Pip Yo for giving us the distraction pieces space. And thank you for a cast for hosting this as well, for spreading this net. 
I'm at Jason Tron, and next episode, it's going to be with Rufus Hound. He's going to be joining us for a panel discussion. We're going to keep evolving this podcast as well. We're going to keep with the podcast um, live panel discussion. And then we're going to do some things along the way as well as we're going to improve it. We're going to have sit-down conversations, uh, very intimate like we do on a normal podcast. We're also going to do some rolling news as well. I've spoken to my friends um, that are in the news field of drug policy and they're going to do a news review with me as well. So we're going to be doing that and sitting down soon. I really want to do some um, audio documentaries as well because some of the voices out there which never get heard are the people on the front lines, the, the, the people that consume drugs, the people that are caught up on the front lines of the war on drugs. These are the voices that we need to speak to because there are some brilliant people out there and that's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that those people get some platform so they can actually have a say because, let's face it, they do get overlooked in this conversation and it's much to the detriment of everybody. So thank you so much again for tuning in and we'll be along next month with the third episode with Rufus Hound. Thank you. Stop and search on the Distraction Pieces Network on a cast. Bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.